Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome to lesson number 32. We are streaming along very quickly through Matthew, although you may not think so. Trust us, those of us who teach, like Bill taught a couple of weeks ago, and he'll tell you, those 15 verses, he felt like he was on a, a toboggan slide going down. It didn't seem fast to us, but to the one who's teaching, and there's so much there. Like, here's the issue with teaching the Word of God. What not to teach. That's just the issue. So the Lord gives us a huge banquet, a room filled with wonderful, wonderful food. And he says to the teacher or the pastor, the preacher, come into the room and look at all of this wonderful food. And as you survey it all, I want you to just take that piece this Sunday for this people to eat. And so as we're presenting that piece this Sunday for this people to eat, our minds, and this right, Bill? Our minds are on the entire, or Ronald, the, uh, the entire rest of the feast. And we're working against and battling against, not talking about, yeah, but, but over here we have this and that. And some of us do better at that than others. So that's, that's the challenge. Isn't God good? <clears throat> to know exactly what we need and how much we need, when we need it, and how to help us to eat it and digest it. Amen. Yes, you may give the Holy Spirit a clap. Yes, amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing in chapter 12. And I think we're going through verses 14. Well, look at this. I have my numbers wrong here. I think we're in third episode 14 to 21. I know that. But I have my major thing up here wrong. Let me make a correction. Okay. Episode 14 to 21. Remember in chapter 12. Matthew has just recorded the confrontation of the Pharisees' opposition to Jesus. And he's recorded the words of John the Baptist, Are you the one or should we expect another? Now, just as a side note, because I just smelled something over here of a piece of food over here. that, So I'm going to deviate for a moment. Hopefully that's okay with the Holy Spirit. How many of us... This last week, how many of us just this last week had an occasion because of circumstance, difficulties, trials, opposition, problem, health, whatever it is, how many of us had an occasion to say, are you the one or should I expect another? Amen. Every opposition of Satan desires to do one thing. Has God said, do you trust him? So Matthew in chapter 12 gives us six illustrations or episodes, if you would, of the kinds of opposition that Jesus is encountering. And not only Jesus is encountering these, but these, remember, are written for our good. As Paul said, those things in the Old Testament, remember in 1 Corinthians, he said, they're recorded for your good upon whom the ends of the world will come, for the good of the church. And so as, again, we read through the scriptures, 
And as we read, Jesus did this, and Jesus did that, and they said this to him, and they responded that way, and they attacked him this way, and he responded this way. Let's remember that this is written for us to instruct us concerning who we are in Christ, who God Christ is in us, what is going to happen to us when we walk righteously in the gospel, and how we are to respond to that, correct? That's what we're learning here. So verses 14 to 16. First of all, the third episode is 14 to 21. First three verses of that. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. Immediately, what do you see in that verse? Remember, we've talked about meditating upon the word. The Pharisees conspired together to see how they may destroy him. To see how they may destroy him. What do you see there? Think about it. Wait, wait, just, wait, wait, just think about it. Read the verse and think about it. Pharisees compile together to see how they could destroy him. And I'm on to the next chapter. And I'm finished the chapter. And I've done chapter 12. Now I'm on chapter 13. And I'm moving ahead. And I've read my Bible. Well, it's like eating a wonderful meal. And then you have a physiological problem that doesn't allow you to digest any of it. You're dying of starvation even though you're eating a lot. We need to meditate and what? Ingest it and cooperate with God's nourishing activity in us. What do you see here? The Pharisees conspired together. What does that say? The enemy will draw unbelievers together in unity against the righteousness of God. Correct? You see that? Have you ever noticed that folks in one area of your life and in another area of your life and another area of life. These people don't even know one another. But they all are saying and doing the same thing as it relates to your faith in Christ. Have you ever noticed that? Have any of you noticed that? That there is a unity of conspiracy and opposition against righteousness. And then second, what is the purpose of that unity in opposition against the righteousness of God in us or the righteousness of God in Christ? What is that opposition purposed that they may, what does the Bible say? Conspire together that they may what? Destroy him. So what do we see from that one verse about my life, about your life? That as believers, we are walking in a world of opposition. A world that is in total opposition. Complete and comprehensive and unified opposition to any and every aspect of righteousness or of the gospel in us. In every instance, in every issue, at all times. And the purpose of the enemy behind this opposition is the destruction of our faith, of our obedience, of our ability to produce the fruit of righteousness, which ultimately says that God is not the God that he proclaims to be. 
right? You notice Satan doesn't say there is no God. He's just saying this God isn't the God he's proclaiming to be. He's not denying God. He can't do that. But he's certainly denying the very character and person of God himself in us. So, with that, you can see how quickly we're going to move along this morning. So, verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Again, stop for a moment and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us concerning God, concerning us, concerning the world, and concerning our relationship to God as we live in this world. Jesus, aware of this, falls apart, becomes fearful, leaves town, hides, can't function anymore, worries, is anxious, ceases to do the work of God. Warren, what does it say? Jesus, aware of this. In your life where there's opposition, what does that verse say? Jesus, aware of this. That in your life, is Jesus aware of what's happening? Is he or not? Yes. Jason, in your life, when the opposition occurs, Jesus, aware of this, what does that say for you? Jesus knows. Andy, what about you? Steve, what about you? AJ, what about you? James, what about you? Wendy, what about... All of us. Is Jesus aware? Yes or no? Yes. Therefore, when these things happen... Not if. When these things happen... Not what if. When these things happen, we must remember verse 15 of Matthew 12. But Jesus is aware of this. Jesus is aware. So what does he do? He withdraws from the context of the opposition. Sometimes he does withdraw, sometimes he doesn't. This being, he being led by the Holy Spirit at this moment, he withdraws. Sometimes being led by the Holy Spirit, he charges right on in. So to withdraw or to not withdraw, which is right? It just depends on the leading of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew, and many followed him, and he hid from them because he was so afraid of the Pharisees and what everybody would say. He could, no, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Does the opposition to Jesus quell his ministry? In fact, I don't know whether this is a correct statement or not, accurate theological statement. But at least in the natural, it looks this way. The opposition of Jesus is fuel for his ministry. Do you, know what I'm, do you, do you understand what I just said, Jody? The opposition is fuel for the ministry. The enemy comes in, attacks. Jesus says, thank you for that log. Puts it on the fire and it gets bigger. They accuse him of this, Steve. Thank you for that. Puts it on the fire and it gets bigger. They slander him over here, puts it on the fire, and it gets bigger. 
Do you notice that the opposition to Jesus, no matter what the opposition is, and no matter how it is disguised and how it comes to him, it never diminishes the ministry. It always increases not only the ministry, but the effect of the ministry. Can we, can I, I, me, Peter Davidson, can I begin to see that the opposition of the enemy through whatever means is God's fuel so often to increase the uh, the ministry and make it more effective because the hotter the fire, the more it will burn away the hay wooden stubble in me, mature us toward a righteousness that displays God more clearly in the world. It's just that, just in those little verses, that's what's there. I didn't even see this until this morning when talking about it. None of this is in your notes, is it? It's not in my notes either. But as I stop and let the Holy Spirit speak, look at what we can glean from the Word. You may say, well, Peter, how did you do that? How did you do that? Murphy, let me tell you how I did it. I didn't do it. I just stopped for a moment and listened to someone else besides my own thoughts. Correct? I stopped. Last of what? I just stopped. And listen to someone else. After his dispute with the Pharisees, Jesus departed and he heals all of the people. He's undeterred by the opposition. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now Matthew takes this occasion of the opposition and Jesus' response by healing all of the people who are following him to show us that what is happening here, and God, Matthew has given us this to show that this is in fulfillment of one of the prophecies of the Messiah from Isaiah to, again, continue to show through this connection of Jesus' person and his ministry and the effect of the ministry, that connection to the fact that Jesus is God's Messiah. Remember, he is the king of Israel come to build the kingdom of God on earth. So Matthew explains that the ministry is fulfillment of uh, Isaiah 42, 1 through 6. So let's look at verse 18, which is a quote from uh, Isaiah 42, 1 through 6. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved whom my soul is well, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This is a revelation, a prophecy of what Jesus' person and ministry is all about. Now, in one way, and in a very central and specific way, the ministry of Jesus is totally unlike every other ministry. In what particular aspect? In its redemptive aspect. But other than that aspect... The person in ministry of Jesus is being duplicated where? Where? In his body, the church. So when I read these verses, once again, and I know I'm taking a little time on this this morning, but I just felt compelled to do this. In these verses, once again, these are not just about This one man. If you want to know something about your meaning and significance and impact and purpose in life, 
If you want to know something about how Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, what does that look like? Well, these verses are some of the verses that describe what that looks like. Because remember what Romans 8.29 says. For we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And so when I see that verse, and I remember Genesis one twenty six, and I read these verses, or this verse in verse 18 of Matthew 12, I allow the Holy Spirit to put it together in such a way to say, Peter, this is one of the descriptives that says something about who you are in Christ, who Christ is in me. Our identity in Christ is in me. And the purpose of that identity, that coming together of God and man in the unity of fellowship through a relationship of father and son. So first, there are four statements describe the person of the Messiah. And when I get into these four statements, what are you going to ask yourself about each one? What should you ask yourself about each one? Does this apply to me? And if so, how? These are descriptives not just of one man, but of everyone in this one man. Do we, are you getting this? Do, do you, I need some affirmation from you that this is not going over your head. I know I'm not speaking rocket science today. This is just fundamental 101 Christianity. So first of all, my servant... Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Remember John 6, 38. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. How many of us want to be servants of God? Don't we? Do you know how to test that? I've said this before and you've heard others say it. You know how to test it. The test is, as you're serving God, someone treats you like a servant. Then what happens, Butch? The flesh rises up. Mary, what happens then? There are two Marys at the table. Left and right, Mary. What happens when, Joe, someone treats you like a servant? When your wife treats you like a servant? And I'm sure she does sometimes, right? Certainly she does. You know how I know that? She's a human being. Now, Danny doesn't do it, I know. Corey, what happens at school when someone treats you like a servant? Hey, you. Huh? Hello. I called you Corey, didn't I? Should have said Cody, shouldn't I? It happens, brother. Believe me, it happens. It's just one of those wonderful things that happens when you get very old. <laughs> Cody. No, anyway, whatever. Just as long as they call you for dinner, I know. That's the important thing. The man's name is Cody, but I called him Corey. There's another Corey, and, you know, once in a while, and I have to, you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever. 
servant. I go and I know, I know it's obvious I do this, so I'm going to brag upon myself because you're going to see the obvious reality here. I go to Loyola to exercise. Don't you see the obvious? You can't tell that I exercise? <laughs> and I was walking in, and there's a lady there. And I'm going to use her race, a black lady. Cleaning. You know, and I watch. I like to stand and watch. Jean would tell you, I kind of watch people. And I know I had to be careful. That I'm looking at them like, why is that man staring at me? What? He's... A weirdo, you know, like, mm-hmm. You got a haircut, didn't you? Good for you. Looks good. Looks good. And you see, I notice things. <laughs> and I watched people coming in and out, going right past her in the gym, you know, and she's cleaning. And I stopped and I said to her, I said, you know, has anybody just told you you're a cleaning lady, a cleaning, cleaning woman? Yes. She said, yes. I said, you know, you're just a servant, aren't you? She looked at me and I said, that's the highest privilege and the greatest title, perhaps, that a person is given by God. She looked up. She was a believer, but she had never thought of this. She had considered her work as menial. And I said, do you know that if you don't keep this place clean, people won't come in here? She had never connected it, Brenda. I said, you're a servant. Not of Loyola, but you're serving in such a way as to be demonstrating you're a servant of the Most High who works at Loyola in this particular position that is obviously a servant. Every day now we say, how you doing, Brian? You know, totally change her effect. So now I told her when someone treats you like a servant, and they put her down. Hey, you just this. Say, you're right. You're right. I am a servant. I'm a servant of the Lord. You're right. You're right. I am ugly, but beautiful in the sight of God. You're right. I am stupid. Stupid is compared to the wisdom of God. You, know, you can take whatever demeaning term and activity that the devil has against you and against me and turn it around toward praise to God, can't we? Because you see, most of the time, most of it is really true, and that's what bothers us, <laughs> isn't it? I was standing on the street, uh, street corner one time at Magazine in Poitras waiting for a friend of mine who was about two or three blocks away. I may have said this. Old people repeat themselves. And we know not only do that, we say the same thing again and again. So let me not be redundant. But <laughs> Russell's coming this way, and I yelled, Hey, ugly! <laughs> do you know how many people look? Huh? <laughs> huh? 
And then if someone says, hey, why do you call me? I didn't say you, I just said ugly. You agreed to it when you looked. (laughs) It's fun to laugh about this, but it is so centrally significant to our ability to function according to God's call in the midst of a crooked and perverse world that says moment by moment we are failures. We have made a mistake. We are doing wrong. That whatever is happening in our lives is for our destruction, etc., etc. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're saved, we are together what? My servant, saith the Lord. My servant. Number two statement. Whom I have chosen. Stephen, how did you become a servant of God? God chose you. God chose you. Sissy went. What? God chose you. Clara, when did God choose you? Ephesians 1.4. When did God choose you? Ephesians 1.4. If you don't know what it is, we've said it enough. Look it up. When did God choose you, John? Ephesians 1.4 tells us when God chose us. He doesn't say, I chose you because you first chose me. He doesn't say, I chose you because I saw that when I choose you, you would be okay with it and you would cooperate. Therefore, I, knowing ahead of time that you would put your trust in me, therefore I chose you. No, that's backward. It's backward. Puts the emphasis on me. Mike, why are you here today as a servant? God specifically chose you. Had a man in the office not too long ago. Man, this man, beaten down with depression. No good. Failure. Everything I've done is wrong. Just beaten down. Was not a believer. We recommended to come in by one of the folks in the church. Would you see him? I said, sure. I'll see Satan himself. He wants to come in. I had just one word. Go to hell. But I mean, really, that's it, Janet. I only have one word. I'll give him counsel. Be glad to give Satan counsel. He gives me enough counsel during the day. Let me have a little moment with him. We slowly began to share. And he came to a place of, I think, truly receiving Christ. And I told him, I said, you know what? God loves you. He cares for you. He wants to do good for you. Started crying. You see, there is an undoing of the work and the lies of Satan that we must allow the Holy Spirit to do by dwelling upon the truth of his word. So Jesus said, if you remain in my, abide in me and my word abide in you. Don't just quote the second part of the verse because it's not true. If you What? If I abide in you, if I abide in you, and your word, what? Abide or remain, then you shall know the truth of God's word. And the truth shall make you free. 
Free from what? Free from all of these lies that cage us, that incarcerate us, that lock us down, that shut us down, that, <coughs> that immobilize us from being the image of God's own Son in the world. Are you chosen? First Peter 2 4, you are a chosen generation. One of the things I would encourage you to do if you have any doubt about yourself and what has happened and how you've got into this and who brought you in and what, just take the word chosen and run the references in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. And other than, you know, this one chose that one or whatever, you know, about people. but when it's talking about God's relationship to us, look at the word chose or chosen. And it is amazing how absolutely peppered throughout the Bible, the revelation is God has chosen us to be his beloved servants. He says, number three, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Where do you hear that? Where have you heard that verse before? This is my son, or you are my son, depending on the translation, in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The word beloved in the Greek is agapitos. A-G-A-P-O-T-O-S or something like that. Greek. Um, what's his name? Butch knows the Greek language. He can tell you all about it. It means one who is loved by and of God. One who has been by the Holy Spirit's power brought into the love of God to experience and receive and live according to and be in, infused with the very God, love of God that God has within himself among the three persons of the Godhead. We are now of that love. My beloved. Who in the Old Testament was called the beloved of God? His name was given by Nathan to be Jedediah. His other name given by his daddy and his mama was Solomon. And his parents called him Solomon, which has to be shalom, peace, well-being. But Jedediah, I mean, Nathan came in and also says, and the Lord says his name is what? Jedediah. What does it mean? Beloved. Beloved. Solomon is my beloved son. Doesn't mean others weren't. This is a relationship in which the father's love is absolutely honed in, directed toward, given to, shared with Jesus himself as the son in the most unique way, but... We are now sharers of that very same love. How do I know that? Where's the verse that says it? That we are sharers with the, of the very same love that the Father has for the Son. That same love is now given to us and we're sharers in it. Where's that verse? Somebody said that somewhere. John seventeen twenty six. Father, that the love that you have for me may be in them. The same love that the Father has for the Son. May I repeat that? The same love that the Father has for the Son. Now, this is startling. 
In fact, it's outrageous. Not only that God would become a man, but that he would love man this much? The very same eternal, intense, comprehensive, whatever love that the Father has for the Son is now bestowed upon us. Why? Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been placed into Christ the Son. So as God loves the Son, he loves all of those who are in the Son with the same love with which he loves the Son. Can you say amen? One of the biggest struggles I had as a young man, as a result of the way I was raised, and as a result of the terminology that was used against me by my mother, and the actions that she carried out against us, and et cetera, et cetera, I had absolutely no concept of feeling or experiencing Filial, you know what I mean by filial? Parental love. Until the Holy Spirit did something in my heart. And all of a sudden, when I, Harold, began to experience the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, all of that self-twisted love, that inverted meism, me theology, or meology, I think you said. That me, my, why? All of that began to be broken by the love of God. Meditate on these verses. My beloved, with whom my soul is what? Well, please. How many of us want God to be well pleased with us, really? How many of us want that? Don't we? Don't we? Well, there are two issues here. In what category is God always? May I repeat that? Well, yeah, I can. In what category is God always? May I say that one more time? In what category is God always well pleased? When God says well pleased, what does he mean, Debbie? He means well pleased. In what category is God always well pleased? With our sonship. And the Bible, remember, sonship is not a generic term. It's a filial term. So sonship includes boys and girls, men and women. So I don't say daughtership. The Bible says sonship. So we stay with what the Bible says. That category, God cannot. May I repeat that? Fill what? God what? cannot be more or less pleased with us as it relates to our sonship. May I repeat that? God cannot, Rochelle, be more pleased or less pleased with us as it relates to our sonship. Do we, do we understand that? Nothing can touch that love of God. 
Nothing can touch that love of God for us. Now you may thought, you may just have thought, yeah, but you don't, what about, come on, now let's be, let's be real honest. How many of us just had a little butt in our minds? Anybody just have a little something that you remembered what you did or how you did or whatever, and, and it kind of crossed your mind? Anybody at all had that? Yes. But you're hearing that but. The question, has God said that you're the object of his love? Did you know what you did yesterday, Wendy? Do you know what you did? I know what you did, saith the Lord. Do you know what you did? How can it be? Patrice, did you know how you, what you fought yesterday? You know how you acted when this happened? How can, does that touch this essential love of sonship, relationship, if you would, filial relationship? Does anything touch that? Does anything touch it? Yes or no? No. Nothing. 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 But God can be displeased with us when it comes to our works. And that's a different story and a different issue we can talk about later. But even when our works are not pleasing to the Lord, we have to make a clear distinction differentiating our personal relationship with God, that sonship Status that is absolutely protected in Christ forever against any and every opposition that would in any way touch it. That's protected forever. But we must distinguish that well-pleasing from the well-pleasing of how you're doing your daily walk. So you can love your children as much as any parent can, but you may not love the F that he brought home. Right? Now, you're not pleased with the F. How many of you parents were pleased when your child did a bad thing at school, at home, whatever? But how many of us loved our child nevertheless? Amen. My beloved son, well pleased. My spirit... He will put upon us. God has given us the spirit of his son. God has put upon us the spirit of his son. So much so that Paul says in Romans 8 that if we do not have the spirit of God, we're what? We're not his children. One of the clearest and best definitions of being a Christian is not, did you receive Christ? Did you pray? Did you do this and that? The other thing. Probably the better definition of being a Christian is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Because some who pray, and we'll find this out the next time, don't pray by faith. Hmm. We'll have to look at that one day when it comes to the soils. Or soils, for those of you who are not from New Orleans. The fifth statement in verse 18, coming out of Luke 42, 1 through 6, describes the ministry of the Messiah. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The ministry of God in us, the ministry of God in us, 
The ministry of God in us is God's evangelistic activity in us, proclaiming the gospel to all nations, winning men and women, boys and girls into Christ as the Holy Spirit uses the ministry of Christ in us, developed in us by the Spirit, to bring others whom God has determined will be saved into the fold of God. So what is this? He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Jesus' ministry, our ministry, is not restricted to certain kinds of people, certain times, certain anything. It is a wide open ministry as the Holy Spirit will use it, casting the great net of the gospel into the waters so that God himself as we are being used as his net going into the waters of the world and God is using us to collect his people into the kingdom. You see, this ministry not only is not only is not is going to all the Gentiles, but what does it mean? He will proclaim justice. This is a ministry that proclaimed God's mercy and merciful justice to all the nations throughout by the pouring out of God's justice upon Christ. Proclaim the justice of God to all the Gentiles, to all the Gentiles. The justice of God poured out where? Where is the justice of God poured out? Upon Jesus at the cross. That's the justice of God. The soul that sinneth shall die. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Remember that? Jesus pays the price. That's the justice of God. It is poured out on the cross so that as a result of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit into the world so that the mercy of God now may be able to be poured out upon his people. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, I didn't get quite as far as I had desired to. And we'll see next week whether Charles said this morning, when you don't get finished, you don't ever come back. We're coming back just because of you. So we'll continue next week in verse 19. Thank you so much.